the whole expectation of what an employer should provide has disrupted the workforce. I mean, with the social upheaval, with this country of society going through a pretty massive change on multiple levels, what the employer is expected to do has radically shifted from the days of, I go get my paycheck, I go home, and all of my social community adventures or what I give back, how I use my time and volunteer, and what I get from has shifted from my local. And it's starting to blend a lot more with the employer. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. Welcome, TDW fans. We are honored to have Andrea Heron on the show with us today. She was introduced to us by our dear friends, Doug Shapiro and Molly Breer. Andrea became the head of people at WebMD Health Services six years ago, and her influence currently includes more than 3,000 employees in several business lines. Why? She and her sister, Ashley, co-authored the powerful book on mental health in the workplace, There's an Elephant in Your Office. Andrea is also the host of an award-winning podcast, The HR Scoop. She was recently selected as one of Reagan's top women in wellness and HR, an agent of change in the American Healthcare Leader magazine, and a top leader in DEIB, which stands for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging by Mogul. A Kentucky native, Heron earned a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's in industrial organizational psychology from Western Kentucky University. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Andrew, we're delighted to have you. Let's, let's dive right in. So you've been the head of people at WebMD for over six years. And I have to share, you know, I, I don't want to call myself as a hypochondriac or anything, but whenever I feel a symptom, whether it's mental health or in my body, I'm always going to WebMD to Google it. I'm always pretending to be a doctor. I feel like so many <laughs> people do that. So when you've been at WebMD for six years, is that still your go-to or do you call, actually call your doctor first? Like, what do you do? <laughs> fair, fair question. Um, yeah, of course I go there first. <laughs> I have a, a funny story about that, actually. A few years ago, I was at a meeting with our chief medical officer and I was having some symptoms. And so I went to the website and during a break, I went over to him and said, Hey, I'm feeling this. And WebMD said, I should go see a doctor. And he goes, you should go see a doctor. He's like, well, but you are a doctor. You're my doctor. Can you help me? Of course not. That's not appropriate. It was really a funny moment. And of course we do use it. It's very reliable and trusted and we review it, but um, our employees have internal, you know, tools as well. So keep going. It's all legit. I have one thing to share about that too. The game changer for me is when you guys created the body silhouette thing, and then you hover over and select the part of the body, literally a game changer for, because you can you imagine t- um, from a user experience typing out, well, it's kind of on my, no, you just click. It's on my arm. It's on my, <laughs> you know, it's amazing. I know. It's like, what is this called? I don't know what that's called. I need to point to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. I had the pleasure of watching your OFS webinar with Molly Breer 
And you were unpacking the new book with your sister and you had your powerful story telling how your sister came to you and shared that information. It was kind of a surprise and you realized, wow, there aren't a lot of resources for this out there. But specifically, when you said 65 million Americans are suffering from some kind of mental health disorder, and then you take that and codify it into three personas of workers struggling with mental health. And this has been such a big topic that feels like it's kind of broken free in the workplace now. So what are the three personas? And can you give us a little background? Yeah, it was an interesting experience with my sister kind of almost losing her job and telling me she had severe depression and anxiety. And I did not even know that. And so clearly there's a lot here and that was pre-pandemic. And so it breaks down to one in five. U.S. adults has a mental health disorder. And that's just the regular number. Right now, it feels like that number is a lot higher. And so when we talk about mental health, I think a really interesting point is that people automatically think of mental illness, but we all have mental health, right? So we don't necessarily have to go to mental health me equals illness because you can't win mental health. There's no gold star because you nailed it. Uh, We all have it every day. But if you think of that big number, one in five, those people are certainly in the workplace and we don't know how to manage it. And so the three categories really was to help distinguish the different ways it can show up. So the first category are the amazing mammoths. Because, you know, I found over time in my HR career, when you have to talk about difficult or kind of sensitive topics, keeping it a little light and cheeky can help go down a little smoother. So hence, oh, elements. Um, so we have our amazing mammoths. And what this group signifies is those individuals that go through some kind of difficult time that they have a hard time coping with. So maybe their coping mechanisms just aren't holding up like they used to. And they move into something called an adjustment disorder because those life stressors are a two-ton elephant weighing on them so heavily that they can't really function like they usually would. So this could be something like a divorce, uh, illness or death of a loved one, loss of a job, maybe a global pandemic. You know, so these things that maybe at some point in your life, you could easily navigate with the tools and resources you have, but at other times, it's just too much. And so this isn't necessarily a diagnosed thing, but it certainly impacts how someone shows up. So that's our first group. The second group is our invisible elephants. And this is kind of what most people think of as far as diagnosed anxiety disorders, depression, OCD, PTSD, and eating disorders. That's kind of the biggest group. And these individuals live every day with managing their mental health condition. And so they try to blend in and no one wants their boss or their coworkers to think there's something wrong with them. Right. And we've made a lot of progress, but the stigma is still there and nobody wants people to think they should snap out of it or, you know, all of the go for a walk, you'll cure that depression. You know, I think we're moving away from that a little bit, but it's still there. And so this group, we talk about it being cubicle camouflage. You know, they just want to blend in and seem normal. And so that group really needs consistency. And I'm speaking in generalities. Obviously, everybody's a unique person. But, you know, consistency, um, no surprises, routines, and stability can really help somebody ground. And one thing we don't think about is for a lot of people, including those with some of these diagnosable disorders, it doesn't mean they've necessarily been diagnosed, is work might be the most structured and consistent thing they have in their whole life. 
And I think we take that for granted and we think, oh, me checking in with somebody doesn't matter. But it might. You might be someone for a person who's struggling that is a consistent in their life that really can make a difference. So I think sometimes we believe that mental health is so big and that there's nothing we can do to help people. But just showing up and being consistent can actually help people maintain their mental well-being, especially if they do have some of these more serious or at least lifetime mental illnesses that they have to manage. That word invisible, I think, is really sticky. And you're saying that of the three groups, this is the largest of the three groups. These are people that are just really putting an enormous effort into hiding in plain sight, effectively, whatever they're struggling with. Right. And how how do managers, leaders, HR professionals, and even coworkers help support that is something we've never really talked about until very recently. Yeah. Well, and even when you said fit in or this word came up for me of try to be normal, what is normal? And I think only now, even in recent years, we're starting to collectively say there is no normal. Like what, what does that even mean? If you said try to be normal, what is, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Yeah. What does it mean? And what is and what it means now is different than what it meant two years ago, which yes. is certainly different than it meant four years ago. Yeah. So well, I could talk all day about that. Okay. But the last group is the rampaging pack derbs. So this group refers to individuals who suffer a major episode of poor mental health at work. So it could be a physical blow up. It could be an emotional meltdown, but it's some kind of scary, volatile, could be violent situation that just someone hits a breaking point because their mental health becomes too much to bear in that moment that it just kind of implodes or explodes. This is a really bad day for everybody, right? So I I like to hold empathy for the person experiencing that. And I'm not saying violence is okay, obviously, but just to step back a little bit, safety first, follow all protocols if anybody has a, a meltdown or a blow up, but nobody wants to be in that situation, certainly not at work. And so I think what we want to do is try and create an environment where it doesn't get to that, but also we don't have full control over people's mental health, nor should we. So, you know, I've had my own fair share of those moments. And what I have found, if it ever comes up, which I hope it doesn't for you, but you just, if you can remain as calm as possible, um, that fire, that, that explosion or implosion cannot be fueled. So there was one time, you know, I had someone very upset and very aggressive and kind of, you know, yelling and, okay, well, when you're ready, have a seat and we'll continue. And it was almost like a character. Like I could see the steam kind of like stop coming out of the Uh ears and the person just sat down and then we moved on with the conversation, escorted them out, made sure they left. Maybe I looked over my shoulder when I left the building that day, but it didn't escalate any further because I wasn't going to match that energy. And we can all bring the level down if we can just try to keep a cool head, even in those super tense moments. I I love that insight. And I think a lot of a lot of this, the spiritual masters talk about this, that when somebody is really in their head and in their emotion, one of the best things you can do is just kind of give them space to reflect on where they're at and sort of see how they're reacting to the world, as opposed to fueling the fire as, as, you, as you talk about, you know, bringing that escalation to it. So I, I love everything you just shared. And I think this work that you're doing is so important. And people are dealing with so much right now. Uh, they really are. 
And we all thought, I think to some degree, we would come out of the pandemic and we would have a little bit of a break, but I don't think it's felt that way, right? We're dealing with AI and the hybrid work, societal shifts, the accelerating need to upskill, reskill, future skill, changes in the way that we lead. I mean, things are really radically changing and feel, I think, deeply uncertain. And this is impacting mental health to a large degree. You know, we, we think that adaptation is probably the most important skill for the next five to 10 years. But what I'd love to ask you is how do you and how should HR leaders think about supporting people through the, the fear, the anxiety, and the resistance that they feel to change and the resistance that they feel to all this uncertainty? Now, I think it's an excellent question and probably one we don't put enough thought into you know, on a regular basis at least from a tactical perspective, because people are generally resistant to change. I mean, if we had said, okay, next week, for no reason whatsoever, we're all just going to work from home. That wouldn't have worked, right? Like people are resistant to that type of thing. And totally. so what, I, what I've seen work as far as creating that more flexible workforce is to find your early adopters, find people that are interested in the change, that have, maybe have some passion around it, but also, and this is the part people miss, find your resistors to change, your late adopters, your hesitant, your skeptics, okay? And those people are gold for information because they're going to help you overcome the roadblocks, answer the FAQs. And if you can get them on board with whatever change or new thing you're trying to do, they're then going to be advocates instead of you bringing them along at the last minute when they weren't involved whatsoever. Is that kind of like, oh my God, like Bob in accounting is doing this program? Are you serious? Yeah, <laughs> right? If Bob can do it, I mean, this must be pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And whether it's, you know, if we're talking new skills, whether it's a lunch and learn skill sharing, you know, that's something I've seen, like person A has a skill, so they take a lunch and anybody that's interested can come. Well, those are kind of your early adopters, right? Those are people that are interested, that want to grow. Maybe it's online courses or it's your more traditional webinar or certificate, whatever it is, you cannot have change and adapt to new skills if you don't set aside time and budget. And when you do, and when you actually invest in the time for people to grow, that reinforces their sense of belonging, that they feel cared for, and that's going to increase your retention and your referrals. And people want to bring their friends to work there. Uh, but this is really a more strategic approach that benefits everyone, kind of like taking care of mental health, but growing people in your organization to adapt to the future, to get new skills, to buy, figure out a new way to work has almost nothing but upside, except maybe the downside is it, it might cost a little money and time. Yeah, but the, re- the, the return is exponential, right? Because then you're right. ready for this world that's unfolding as opposed to digging out of a hole, so... And losing good people along the way, right? Yeah. Because they wanted to learn that skill and you it wasn't available or you they just didn't have the time or support. So they go to their friend's company who does and now you've lost a great employee. Yeah. And I think that's right now trending is the number one reason why people are staying or going is, is, is my company investing in me. Well, and I think the whole expectation of what an employer should provide has disrupted the workforce. Um, I mean, with the social upheaval, with, I mean, just countless things that you mentioned some of them earlier of this country of society going through a pretty massive change on multiple levels. 
what the employer is expected to do has radically shifted from the days of I go get my paycheck, I go home, and all of my social community adventures or what I give back, how I use my time and volunteer, and what I get from has shifted from my local. And it's starting to blend a lot more with the employer. I mean, never before have we seen employers expected to make statements about social change and social movements. Yeah. And it's really shifted um, and disrupting a lot. Yeah. I, that uh, employee experience, the human experience and the employee experience sort of colliding. And then this idea of the employment contract of what are you actually offering me now mm-hmm. in this and, and do our values and philosophies align? which in previous generations wasn't really even a conversation. And now we're squarely in it. I mean, and it's literally in the news every single day. So. Right. Because it, my personal values and what I believe in didn't have anything to do with work when all of those needs were fulfilled by my local communities. And now with being so online and so tech forward and the pandemic kind of isolating all of us, that effort turned to the workplace. And that's when I really first noticed people saying, what are we doing about this? Because they felt a little helpless and that they didn't have an outlet to contribute to support because nobody could leave their house. And so I think that's where it started to shift. Like, well, okay, so what are we doing? Because this is my way to contribute and this is the only outlet I see. And that has only, I think, gotten stronger even once we were able to resume some sort of like normalcy. Well, and that's mental health, bringing it full circle is I'm seeing these things. It's happening to my people in my community and I'm feeling the mental and emotional weight of this. And it doesn't feel right that as a company, we're not taking a stand on this or I can't talk about it here or my, my leader won't talk about it or my company is tone deaf or whatever the thing is. I think it's a natural progression for people to start to wade into these waters. And yeah, it's going to be messy. And speaking of messiness, resumes, backgrounds, and pedigree are giving way to this demand for skills, uh, highly valuable skills, and your ability to rapidly learn relevant skills that are changing really fast, right? And so this is a new measure of value. And I know this is going to be messy, but there's, there's something happening. There's a talent shortage. It's very clear. And people are starting to talk about this idea of a skills marketplace where I need a skill as a business. I've got strategic goals. I got to hit these things. I'm going to go find these skills internally or externally because I need them now. Well, that's kind of similar to the gig economy. And in February of 2023, Zipia reported that the gig economy is growing 15x faster than the traditional job market. And it just seems like there's something really interesting here happening around, I need skills now and I'll get them wherever I can get them because we're in a talent shortage. Do you see this skills marketplace being sticky inside of the corporation and kind of the future of the corporation? I certainly envision more blended roles that require multiple skill sets as employers are asked, asking people to do more with less. Like, oh, you can do that too. Great. That's now in your job description. Um, <laughs> um, more money for it. I'm not so sure. Um, <laughs> I'm Nate gives honest. me like five new domains a week, <laughs> so it, I know what you're talking right? about. He's like, you're so hey, good at that. Yeah. Here's more He's hard. like, hey, Alex, uh, shingles on the roof. I'm like, what does that have to do with? Anyway, whatever. whatever. You're just so good at it. What a growth opportunity, right? So I think that is very realistic. And also, perhaps contractors and freelancers do get utilized more in the traditional business model as a project base. 
I think we're quite a ways off from a traditional workplace shifting to a full gig style economy. Because while those types of roles are convenient and flexible, and obviously people like them a lot, a lot of people have side hustles and and gigs. Most of those don't offer health insurance, time off, retirement savings, you know, some of those more traditional benefits that that's okay for some people, but most people do depend on their employer for those types of benefits. So that could shift over time if we can figure out how to support those benefits in a new way. But I think until we do, it will probably stay more with people having some semblance of a full-time job that, you know, they can use those perks and benefits from their employer and then also do the side gig for extra cash. I love that answer. And I I do want to take us in a little bit of a different direction. You've talked about the importance of people being seen at work for who they are. And there's this big emerging movement sort of since the pandemic of bringing your whole self to work. And you put a very brave post out on LinkedIn a year ago where you identified with the LGBTQIA plus community. And you wrote, I'm tired of not feeling comfortable enough to show up and share the queer parts of myself. I'm tired of feeling like if I was brave enough, maybe I could be the representation I needed so badly as a young professional. And you go on to say, there's too much at stake for any of us to hide who we are for one more minute. The world needs each and every one of us because we all have such different talents, experiences, and skills to share. Why force ourselves to live in shades of gray when we have access to a full rainbow color? And this is deep and vulnerable and incredibly inspiring. You know, I can only imagine how hard that was to share. And I'm curious to know why do you think that more leaders don't model the way? as you did here? It's a good question. And it was very scary to post that. And I just hate that. It shouldn't be, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I wanted to say it. It's like, this shouldn't be hard. This shouldn't even be news. (laughs) This should just be regular life. And I think the truth is most people don't want to risk being perceived as different or they are afraid of the stigma that might come with that. So you have to kind of be willing to be ready for whatever comes your way. Or also, I think some people have a limiting belief that in order to be a good leader, they have to be some idealized version of a person that they see on social media or that they know who they believe from the outside is perfect, whatever that means. But what they don't realize is that the best leaders are the ones who show up that are real and human. Because when you bring your quirks, you admit your mistakes, and you kind of let people in on who you are, you create deep connection, you build trust, and more importantly, you give people permission to do the same. And most people don't even think of it that way. They don't think, oh, I need permission. But it's just like, I would equate it to taking your time off. When leaders take their time off, it sends a message that it's okay to take your time off. And so when you show up as yourself and you're like, oh, what a minute, I'm so sorry, I made that mistake. How can we fix it? People are like, oh, it's okay to make mistakes. Right. So I think it's just showing up as who you are is critical and the visibility that comes with that. I think what really pushed me is really that part that you read about the representation. I did not know any queer female identifying leaders whatsoever until I was, I think, 30. And 
it, that's just a huge barrier for people feeling like they could achieve it. That's a long time to be out of college and in your career and not hear from anybody in a leadership position that identifies in the way that you identify. That's a long time. Yeah. It's a long time. And there were some women, not as many, but there were at least some, but I didn't know or even out in the world see much. So I just really believe that if you have the space and the the capacity to show up and use whatever platform you have, no matter how small it is, even in your own work group, it creates a more equitable and inclusive workplace. Because again, it's like mental health. We all are who we are. We're bringing ourselves everywhere. And when we make space for that, the outcomes are just so much better. And until people do it, then that stigma is going to remain because it, we need a shift there. And it's totally scary, but worth it. And actually brings you much closer, not only to yourself and kind of your self-actualization as a person, uh, but to your staff, which then just builds on each other for you know trust and creativity. Yeah. Psychological safety, right? I, th- that's what the first thing that comes to mind is now you've created safety and you've taken fear out of the room and filled it with acceptance. Like I can, and that modeling the way is so powerful. I do have to ask you this. The book was written in 2019. Did that give you, you know, Ashley's coming to you. You're going through this process of writing this really important book about people feeling safe. And then did that give you some spark or was there any blend there for you to write that post later? Sure. I mean, going through the process of writing some things, um, so, you know, mentally deep, it does make you kind of excavate yourself and what you're putting out there. And I, like I said, I just got tired of it. I just got tired of acting like it wasn't there. And, you know, being from Kentucky, I just couldn't express it or I felt I couldn't for a long time. And I just didn't want to live like that anymore. And I think also seeing other people do it gave me the confidence, but now I can be that safe person. And I can't mm. tell you how many people have come to me and like, I, I didn't know what to do, or thank you for doing that. Or even people in other types of marginalized groups being like, wow, that, I really thought that was great that you could do that. It's really scary. And then they share a personal story. So, I mean, it definitely has a ripple effect. And again, if I can be of service and in any way help somebody be themselves sooner, faster, quicker, I am all for it. It's worth, it's worth the risk. I, I want to unpack this just a little bit more because I think it's a very rich conversation. And I think for anybody listening, they're probably wondering to some degree, what parts of my authentic self should I be showing more of? And what parts of my authentic self maybe don't belong in the workplace? Now, let's say, for example, I swear all the time when I'm at home. And that's my most authentic self. And I just use swear words all the time. Like that's not necessarily a version of myself that I would think would do particularly well in a corporate environment. But if there are pieces of myself or pieces of or struggles that I've been through or things that help people understand more about what makes me me and the journey that I've been on and where I've maybe run into roadblocks or where I've overcome things, those are good stories I would offer to share. What are what are some of the the tips and takeaways of how you share your authentic self? It, it really is such a great question, right? Because I think in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we all saw some things that maybe we shouldn't have on the Zoom calls and, you know, people's, filter, yeah. <laughs> people's filters or just kind of forget where you are and who you're talking to when you're online and 
certainly I had to deal with some very interesting <laughs> situations. <laughs> but yeah. it's a fair question, right? And I think it takes some adult discernment to know. And so, I mean, the rule of thumb, I think, is if it's something that would be questionable to say to your grandparent or to your boss or something like that, we're going to leave that at home, right? You're not going to come out and be cussing all the time. And oversharing and undersharing of information is actually one of the signs of an adjustment disorder because you don't have that discernment of what is appropriate. And so being able to manage what you share, is just an adult skill that some people are better at than others. And that's why my profession exists in part um, to help <laughs> guide those individuals. Um, what I really think of it is if it is a different perspective, something people aren't saying, but you know, you're thinking probably more people are thinking it. If it is a disagreement, we need those because you don't want to get into group think. And to go back, I love talking about toxic positivity because sometimes with our very best intentions, especially leaders will give messages like, you know, there's a bright side. Don't be so down. It could be worse. Posse vibes only, you know, all of these things, <laughs> which are oh, not inherently man. bad. So if you've said those things, don't panic. Please don't panic. Nate, Nate has suspenders that say posse vibes only. <laughs> actually, he wears them all oh, the time. Oh, I wish you had worn them today. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> so don't panic. Keep, keep your suspenders. It's when those are the only messages allowed, when no one is allowed to have a bad day, when no one is allowed to disagree, when, you know, not every brainstorm needs a, a rainbow after, you know, like sometimes yeah. days are hard. And so I think by encouraging you to, that's the part you bring, right? Like I'm having a bad day. I'm not in the mood. That's okay. You can bring that because now everybody knows it's not personal that you're not one foot out the door, you know, so just sharing kind of a quick check-in or if you do have something major going on, not and shouldn't disclose all of your personal medical details. That's not what I'm saying, Yeah. but Hey, I'm going through a rough time if I'm short. Or if I have a quicker response, it's not personal. Yeah. And I also like what you were saying about the check-in of, sometimes I think that's literally the best tool in that moment of, hey, I'm feeling this, but I'm going to go to a trusted advisor or somebody that I really connect with to just check it with them before I say it. Hey, is this, do you think this would be okay? Where you can get that feedback. And I'm sure Andrea, you're that for a lot of people, right? Where they come to you and say, hey, is this going to work? And then you can help them reset right. as appropriate. So, so what I was hearing was there's a little bit of adulting that has to go on first and foremost. There is a filter, but being open and honest and sharing your emotions and not being, uh, not simply going along with the crowd because that's what the crowd seems to be saying at work. That's where there's a lot of room, I think, for improvement to have a bit more dissonance. And to, to hold space for that as a way yeah. to allow the organization to get better. Because the problem that you see oftentimes is it's the loudest voice in the room that gets heard and that leaders don't hear um, the people beneath them disagreeing with them. So, you know, a company can be really on a wrong track because all these you know, people are just believe that it's their job just to say yes and encourage whatever comes down from on high as, as, uh, is, is sacrosanct. And that's not the way to do it. Right. I mean, we've all seen those ads or billboards where you just go, hmm, 
Well, nobody really double checked that or, you know, <laughs> looked at that. Yeah. They didn't have a friend that was like, hmm. Um, and that's where it becomes toxic, right? Where it's not safe to disagree and you might risk your job and you're not willing to do that. And so that's super unhealthy and bad for business. Let's not talk about job risk here, Andrea. Posse vibes only, okay? <laughs> oh my gosh. That, that ties me perfectly to my next question. Andrea, we picked three stats that are actively redefining the employee experience and workplace culture. And we want to get your perspective on these because we think they are signals to the end of an era. These stats are a little concerning. The first one is on loyalty. In May 22, Wharton article titled, Is Workplace Loyalty Gone for Good? stated, the modern workplace has become increasingly transactional and American workers spend a median of 4.1 years with employers for almost under four years, right? And, and, and there's turnover is happening faster and faster. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. It's a natural progression of where we're at. The second one is worker productivity. In October 2022, NPR reported that Worker productivity in the U.S. is at an all-time low, and this is the biggest decline since the government started tracking in 1948. And the third one is engagement. In January 2023, Gallup, which always does an amazing job tracking engagement, published that 32%, only 32% of full and part-time employees working for organizations are now engaged, while 18% are actively disengaged, again, the lowest it's been in 10 years. And, and the question here is, we know culture, workplace culture is in a state of flux, but what is the future of culture and belonging with the, these kind of stats and in this kind of state? Yeah, I mean, they are shocking and also not shocking um, stats. Yeah, I think the tremendous amount of change that we have undergone, people really had the time and space for the first time because I couldn't do anything else, is think, how do I want to spend my energy? How do I want to spend my skills and time? And does this work for me versus being on you know, the treadmill? So in my view, the workplace has to become more whole person focused. And we have to think about more than just the output. We want people to be loyal and stay and give their time and energy and all of their attention. That employment contract has shifted. What are you giving back to me? And just to give a really stark example, the federal minimum wage is seven twenty-five an hour. Mm. So there are people working a full-time job that are in survival mode that can't afford groceries or rent. And it's really hard to be engaged and loyal and give your all when you can't even provide almost the basics for yourself and your family. So I think that is a, a huge just thing to note that we're asking a lot and for people to do more with less but I'm not sure we're really reciprocating on the whole to support those people in doing that. And there is a lot of upheaval as we've talked about and change, and that takes a toll on people, which means it takes a toll on the workforce. But how do we solve it, right? Like, how do we move on from here? I mean, obviously, if we can find a way to pay people more, that's just step one. But even more than that, people have become very isolated. Loneliness is a huge factor for health. And so if employers and workplaces can find a way to create more person-to-person connection, even while remote or hybrid, um, that is going to be the best strategy I can think of for long-term belonging and success and all of those things that we want from our staff. We have to kind of handhold the process a little bit and give opportunities to connect. And that could be, you know, some of the things we do here 
maybe there's a coffee chat for 30 minutes, no work, totally social, it's online, it's Zoom, so everyone can participate, totally optional. Or you do lunchtime bingo online, you know, and then maybe you have some in-person things to connect. Maybe there's a mentorship program. Uh, We do peer coaching. So it's just, we've got to find those ways to rebuild those social skills, because especially for people that were newer to the workforce right around the pandemic, they have never even met anybody they work with. They don't Mm -hmm. actually have the skills to build relationships because they probably also did college online you know, with the pandemic. And so there are some basic, very basic social skills that I'm finding we need to help develop, which is new. Uh, but I don't think we can ignore that. I mean, it's very real. And so if we embrace it, instead of shaming people for not knowing how to write a correct email or having a tone, then you're, again, it's going to benefit everyone and not just your workplace, but as they move on to a new career, you know, if you can help the overall good because you gave them some really tactical, helpful adult skills that maybe they didn't have, that is better for everybody. More connection, more community, more meet me where I am. Let's get through this together. Yeah. And just, I also hear you saying the flexibility of, we're going to have to test some things. We're going to have to try some things and see what works for us. That's great. Absolutely. Andrea, we want to ask you one final question and then take you into a speed round. Ooh, okay. Yeah. So our last question for you is, why is now? the best time in history to make work better and reimagine our purpose and potential? Well, now is always the best time. It's the only time. (laughs) Good answer. answer. Okay, that's the short answer. Um, (laughs) I think the the idea of reimagining work can be very overwhelming and feel unattainable, right? So I'm a very tactical person. So the way I think about it is like, how do we make work better? Okay, take it down to your level. I love this circle of control exercise. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but if you're not, take a piece of paper, draw a circle on it, write everything within your work life. And you can do this for other parts of your life too, but everything in your work life that you have absolute control over, or at least some measure of control. Anything that's not in that circle is now not yours to spend time and energy worrying about. So what can you do within that circle to improve your workday or the workplace? There's so much potential to start there and do incremental steps. And just like we said with bigger culture, what works? Does that work? Great. Keep doing it. Does that not work? Okay. Try something else. You know, and that way you're not going to get burned out and you're going to incrementally make your work and your life better instead of being super overwhelmed and not even trying because you don't know where to begin. Can you push everything out of the circle? Can you just take everything out? <laughs> you know, it's your empty. circle. <laughs> I am not going to control. I can't control your circle. <laughs> yeah. I do like the self-rescue there, though, of and that real change has always started with self. So you're kind of giving that power back to the, every individual and saying, hey, you don't have to boil the ocean. You don't have to fix everything. Just start with what you can do. Right. And then it's not overwhelming. Yeah. Speed round. This is very easy, very simple. Um, we're going to ask you some quick quick questions and your job is to answer fairly quickly, like 30 to 60 second answers. Uh, and whatever is kind of gut natural to you, what, what it comes out is great. Okay, I love this. First question. So one of the biggest mental health struggles over the last two years has been burnout. Is burnout still the big conversation or is it something else now? I think we're too burnout to talk about burnout. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's actually probably not talked about enough. 
it's talked about at the surface level, like what burnout is, but I don't think we've spent enough time or have the the tools to actually address it. And so we're all just like, check, burnout, but I have to get these 12 things done today. So I, I do think it's still really important and we need to probably spend even more time on it. Stanford economics professor Nick Bloom posted in May of this year and said, U.S. cities are down 32% in activity versus pre-pandemic with office employees working from home about 50% of days. And he goes, based on my data, which he had a chart in the post, he said, I think that the return to office has stalled out. What do you think? Oh, this is just such a big question. Um, I think there is a, I just really, this is one where we are getting disrupted, where humans want the flexibility. We want yeah. to be able to take up the kids, take our therapy appointment in the afternoon, hit that gym class at noon when we could have before, <laughs> yes. right? And that works for our overall well-being. And then you have employers who pay for the space, who want collaboration, who want people there because whatever reasons they have. And so I do think the hybrid situation is going to continue with some employers pushing more extreme on either side. But I do think that flexibility and the expectation of that flexibility is not going anywhere. Totally agree with you on the expectation for flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. What is your go-to release when you're feeling stressed or overwhelmed? Oh, this is my favorite. I love this question. Okay. So one of my favorite things to do, if I can't go for a quick walk or something, like that would be ideal. But if I only have like five minutes between meetings, it's a beauty break. So you know that feeling when you're on vacation and you're like, I was made for this. I could live in this moment forever. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Okay, so what you're going to do is you're going to bottle that feeling. And when you get back in your regular day-to-day, maybe one minute, even just one minute, more if you have time, but pull up a photo from that vacation or your favorite pet, or just look at your window, the flowers are blooming, anything beautiful, and just breathe and tap into that feeling of when you were in your favorite place. And that will immediately bring your stress down. It will calm you. And now you will just be able to kind of reemerge in a more centered place. And it takes a minute. And so that is my go-to. I love that. See, I, I would never take a break because working with Nate, <laughs> working with Nate is like a permanent Aww, vacation. Just a permanent oh, beauty break. That's so... <laughs> you just call him up on Zoom during the break. Uh-huh. Hey, buddy. That works. Uh-huh. That works. I love that. I love that bromance. Okay. <laughs> DEIB, which is diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, used to be window dressing and frankly, CYA the corporation. However, things have changed. The tone has changed and there's a lot more activity in that space in the best way. Do you feel it has finally taken a seat at the table in the C-suite and in the boardroom? Are we now in a new era for this? I think we want to be, and I think we are making steps there. I think hiring someone to focus on it is a great first step. There's a lot more work to come. Uh, Because obviously, we're not going to fire people because of their gender or race, right? You can't just make that flip automatically to make everything equitable on a dime. But certainly, we need to take steps towards it. And out of all those letters, you know, they're all important. But the DEI really, to me, seems to be more about checking the box for contracts to say we did it to prove that we are good, right? But it's the belonging that is going to make the difference. Because Let's say there are people that look like me here and I still don't feel like I can speak up. I still don't feel like my opinion is heard or respected. I don't belong here. Mm. Right. And so checking the box, I see a lot of a lot more of that happening, which again is a great step forward. 
But until we really embrace how do we ensure everyone belongs, including, I mean, this is from our great friend, Doug, you know, what does your workspace look like? Does everyone feel Mm. comfortable there? Like what pictures do you have on the wall? Are all bodies or just able bodies, you know, able to access your space? You know, I mean, there's this example in the little kitchen. The microwave is up here. Like it was certainly designed by a tall person. I don't yeah. get my coffee or out. For, I'll spill it all over myself. I'm a total putz. So, you know, until we can make sure people belong and feel like their voice matters, I think there's a lot more progress to be made, but we're certainly on a better path. And I'm happy about it. It's kind of like mental health. Like we've started, but there is a lot more work to do to really ingrain it for actual systemic change. We all agree that humor and having more fun at work is needed now more than ever. What are a couple ways you bring joy, humor, and playfulness to your work now? Another great question. I love this because work doesn't have to be boring. Oh, I find, especially in my line of work, people kind of expect me to be dry and boring, just so disappointing. And so <laughs> when we have meetings, we start with music, start with a good playlist. Like while people are getting there, you know, they're kind of like logging in, preparing for whatever meeting. And kick it off with something fun. Like, what's the best news you have? Start there. And sometimes I'll just be like, I'm in a silly mood. I'm so sorry. And like, okay, we're being silly today. And just, again, making it okay for me to be in a mood. And hopefully it's a good mood uh, in a big meeting. But, you know, just being human, asking people like, what's something awesome that happened to you? Or laughing. Like, if something goes wrong and you do the whole regroup, let's like laugh about it. Like, oh my gosh, that was so bad. Like we tried that thing. Everybody hated it. We're never going to do yeah. that. Right. But then not taking it so seriously. It's not to be so serious. Andrea, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for being uniquely you. Thank you for all your work to help people that feel invisible, feel more visible. And for the huge strides you're making to put a spotlight on the importance of mental health and these other critical, critical issues at work and through your servant-based leadership. Thank you. It was a joy. It was a joy talking with both of you. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Andrew, one last question. Where's the best place for people to find you? Um, LinkedIn is always great. And also there's a full website with all the books that I have written and my sister have written, um, elephantinyouroffice.com. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future.